Welcome back to another episode of Inside the Forest. I'm Cam Lemons. Fun little show today. Touch a little bit on the hiring of Air Force wide receivers coach Ari Confessor as the new Wake Forest wide receivers coach, as well as a mailbag thanks to the wonderful Demon Deacon Digest subscribers. I'm going to try and do one of those probably once every month or so. So if you ever want a question, feel free to sign up. We'll be able to ask it. Maybe we'll get asked on here. So we're going to kick things off with the wide receiver hire. I think the best word to describe this one is interesting. So a little bit of his background, if you haven't been able to keep up with things here, he has been at the Air Force Academy for the last three years, teaching my receiver coaches. He was at Holy Cross for a year, did well there. And he, before that, was at Rhode Island for eight years um, in total. He was their wide receivers coach for six years, I believe. And in between there, he took a year off to be in the scouting department for the Kansas City Chiefs. No, that resume speaks to me like, okay, you know, he has probably some talent, but he hasn't done it at the FCS level. And I think that I'm going to start with the negatives here. Yeah, no, I mean, that's definitely a, a question mark that I think people are allowed to have of saying, hey, you know, you didn't go out and get someone that has coached at really the power five level. I mean, sure, the Air Force is in the Mountain West. That's, you know, that's FBS level G5. But, you know, when you're replacing a legend such as Kevin Higgins, that's something where you kind of expected someone to kind of come in that has probably had a wealth of experience, whether coaching, whether it be recruiting at this sort of level. And I understand the question marks there. And the second question mark is, yes, it was also at the Air Force Academy where they're throwing the ball or dropping back what 120 times a game. I think the number from PFF this past year was 120 dropbacks. Not exactly the Wake Forest offense which can throw the ball 120 times in two in really one and a half games if they're really trying to air it out. So I think there's definitely a couple of question marks about that, especially after what they did to replace Paul Williams at the quarterback's coach, hiring Chip West, who had a litany of um, power five jobs, has been a recruiter, a very high recruiter. So I, I understand the questions there. I mentioned this on the board a couple of days ago when the hire was announced or was announced by Pete Thamel, not officially announced. Um, I don't think it's been announced officially at this time yet. I think this hire was going to be different no matter what because of who was making hire. While Dave Clawson is able to, not able, he is the person that is giving the green light, this hire comes down to Warren Ruggiero, the offensive coordinator. The cornerbacks coach hire came down to Brad Lambert, the defensive coordinators. Position coaches are higher based on the offensive coordinator. The offensive and defensive coordinators are the ones that are there. It's their job to go find who, who the guy they want. Brad Lambert, for example, had a lot more connections and a lot more experience. And there's just a lot more, a lot more avenues for him to be able to say, I can go into my Rolodex and find someone. It's not a positive or negative. It's just how it has been. Brad Lambert has been. All around the world, he, while he hasn't necessarily worked with Dave Clawson before last year, he's a, he's worked at he worked at Marshall, he worked at Purdue, and he worked at also at Wake Forest himself. He's been around the block and has been able to dip into his Rolodex. And why I know people try to make the connection that Chip West worked with um, worked with Chip um, Dave Clawson. Chip West also worked with uh, Brad Lambert at two separate spots, so they they have their own pre existing uh, relationship. Warren Ruggiero has really been attached to Dave Clawson's hip the last, since 2009, so 14 years at this point. 
it's not a bad thing. It's just the fact that he has been around, he's been around the block, but only with Dave Clawson. And so I think that Rolodex in terms of who I think he's able to have those connections with are just different. If I'm looking at this from a positive perspective and say, you know, what are, what are the big old green flags here? For me, wide receivers coach isn't somewhere that I'm exactly worried about it translating from different levels. You're still, whether you're at the FCS level, Air Force Academy, Navy, Paul Johnson, George Tech, you're not, you're still teaching the same things, even though you're not throwing the ball that much. Like just because you're not throwing the ball, doesn't mean you're not, you're just not doing it, but you're still teaching them in practice. You're still having to know how to get off a press. You're still teach them how to release correctly. You're teaching them how to be in their stance, how to run routes. None of that changes regardless of the level that you're coaching at. While I receive wide receivers at it as a whole, like that group of, of players are reactive in a sense. They their job is to say, hey, I see what the defense is, what leverage they're giving me, what coverage they're playing, and then it's my job to say, okay, I'm reacting to this, and then control the outcome, whether it's beating a man one-on-one or it's finding soft spot in the zone. That doesn't change no, anywhere. That that has never changed at all. And yes, I know he's had the last three years at the Air Force, but he's also coached at Holy Cross and coached at Rhode Island when they're not sitting here running the triple option. So it's not like he has zero experience at all, necessarily coaching people how to run different types of routes. And they're running different types of routes at Air Force. Where Air Force was actually kind of a really fun passing offense when they did it. When, we have, when you go back and watch them, they actually ran a few different concepts that actually weren't just rolling out of a wishbone and going, oh no, they're actually passing. Like they, they ran some fun play action stuff. They ran some really fun, just straight dropbacks. Like I was really pleased with that. But I don't know what this coaching hire is going to have. I have no idea. Coaching hires are a crapshoot. I've seen accomplished guys come in and be just terrible recruiters. And I've seen people who have no background whatsoever come in and be amazing recruiters. Just looking through his sort of evaluations in terms of who he's coached, I mean, who's, who's recruited, who's done, who's sent out offers to, et cetera. There's been some overlap with guys that Wake has recruited, whether they've given them scholarships or not. So, Obviously, I think there's going to be some overlap there in terms of they're not going to deviate. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons why why they went out and hired this guy is I don't think their type of receiver is going to deviate. I do think there are question marks on whether he's able to land a Wesley Grimes or land a Micah Mays like Kevin Higgins was able to. However, the type of receiver they're recruiting isn't going to change. They're going to recruit hyper-athletic kid multi-sport athlete that probably aren't the most polished of receivers, but you trust your development staff to turn that athlete into a wide receiver. If I put that description out in 2019 or 2020, even 2021, that is the epitome of what Wake Forest wide receiver recruiting is. That's what they do at the service academies or just anywhere that run that sort of triple option like offense is. They say, hey, we're going to sit here and we're going to take whatever the most athletically gifted person we can find, and we'll figure out the rest, the rest later. It's a really interesting strategy for them. And so that's why I don't think there's going to be necessarily any sort of a different, I don't think they're going to, we're going to sit here and check the next month and a half, and Wake Force is going to have 15 to 20 different wide receiver options, like offers out. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. I think they're going to sit there and recruit the same sort of guys. Will it work out? I have no earthly idea. I don't think anyone knows what will happen with coaching hires. I, mean, I know we, we were lauding the Chip West hire. Could it work? 
yes, will it work? I still have no idea. I look at Ohio State. Ohio State hired Jim Leonard, who was regarded as the best defensive coordinator in college football in 2021. And then fast forward to October on of this year, and Ohio State coaches, Ohio State fans have wanted him fired. Just left and right. And I mean, you look at Brad Lambert. Brad Lambert was probably the second or third best defense coordinator in 2021. Has been a really good defense coordinator at every stop of his career, pretty much. And last year, Wake's defense just wasn't good. You have no idea how things are going to hire, how the hires are going to work. And so I, I think having a take just to have a take of this is going to work or this is not going to work isn't fair. And I don't think it's, and I didn't have a take on whether it was going to work or not with Chip West. And I'm not going to have one here. One thing I will say though, with how particular Dave Clawson is about who he surrounds himself with. I've long held that Wake Forest will be the final job for Dave Clawson. Not saying it's going to be this year. I don't think it'll be the next two, three, or four years. But I think this job is his last stop. I think coaching is starting to burn a lot of people out. And Dave, Dave's gotten up there in age. Both of his kids have graduated. His, um, him and his wife seem to be very happy to build a new house. They're near all their family. Same reasons why I don't think he's going to leave anytime soon. But I think this is his, I think this is his last stop. And so I don't think he'd be willing to green light a hire, however green that person may be, if he didn't think he was going to help him win, whether that be win now or win in the future. So I, that's where I kind of go. And I, and I know it's one of the things, you know, trust in the staff, do whatever you want to do, et cetera, et cetera. I think that is still a very important part. He's not the type. There are coaches out there that go, you're just doing stuff to do stuff. Like, whatever. Dave Clawson's never been one of those coaches that you can sit there and be like, he's just doing something and I don't really get it. He, if he makes this move, it's because I think he truly believes that this is someone that can help him win this year, next year, and even moving on to the, into the future. So before we get into the mailbag section of this, let's hear a word from our sponsors. All right. So open mailbag. Got a few questions today. First and foremost, next football commit. So when this question was asked, it was actually asked on Saturday when linebacker Darius Jones was about to commit. I, I didn't want to spill the beans on who that was, but you know, I'll take this question and you know, look through who I think is going to commit sooner versus later. I will say I think we're done with commitments right now until spring camp starts. We're, I mean, we're about, I think Wake Forest starts their fall, their spring camp on March 15th. And not to say they're not recruiting, but it's just at this point, unless someone has already been logged in, more often than not, you're pretty much going to see guys try to wait and see if they can get to another visit just, just to make sure they can that they're doing the right thing. Guys I have an eye on right now are Will Conley, who is an offensive athlete out of Arden, North Carolina. C.J. Williams, who is an offensive tackle outside of uh, Deerfield, Mass. And Jaden Patterson, a corner out of Hofstra, Georgia, goes to Mill Creek. Just a little bit on each one of these guys. Will Conley, like I said, he's a defensive athlete. I think he ends up being a corner at the next position, possibly even just a, a nickel corner. He He's fast. Fast kid, about six foot tall. Really explosive athlete. I think right now, as things stand, this is a... Wake versus UNC battle. He's very high on both of them. Would will not be shocked when he pops up at both Chapel Hill and Winston Salem for spring camp visits. He could be he could be shutting down soon. Could not be. I think he might shut it down shut it down sooner versus later unless someone's really trying to make him hold off. But I think that's one that could he could pop in during the spring for someone possibly Wake. C.J. Williams is sort of the same sort of way. 
Uh, he has offers from Wake Forest. He has another offer from Syracuse as well. And Boston College recently offered him a gigantic uh, offensive tackle, 6'8", 330 pounds. He's going to have to lose some weight definitely before he is at that next level. But uh, I think it's one of the ones that he understands how good Wake is as a school. He's a very high academic kid. I know Wake is recruiting a couple of kids from his high school as well. This could be one where Wake tries to get this one in the bag before he starts blowing up. Because I think with a successful senior year, he's also a very athletic basketball player. I think with a successful senior year, this could be a guy that you know has that late rising season. So I think this is one that Wake might want to get done with sooner versus later. And with Jane Patterson, Mill Creek. So Mill Creek is an interesting high school, very, very talented high school in Hoshton. The really interesting thing about Jaden is they are really high on him and his teammates. They're also recruiting offensive linemen, Aiden Banfield. Um, who I think that's going to come down to Wake and UNC, maybe Georgia Tech as well. And they're also recruiting defensive ends, defensive linemen. I should say he's kind of an athlete, a hybrid, but he might grow into being a, a strong side guy. Uh, Cole Mullins, they are really high on this trio of Mill Creek athletes. And... I think they're high on, on Jane Patterson. The offer was extended before Chip West was, was higher, but they're still in communication with him, and it sounds like he's going to visit during the spring. If they can get one of them in the bag, I think it starts building the momentum to get a second and get a third. And so I think having a guy who might not be as highly rated as some of the other corners that they have committed, they still think he can play. I mean, he's, I think, six one, about 180. He can move for that size. He's really tackler for that size as well. Getting him committed can start playing some dividends for some guys that are extremely high on your board on other positions. So I think they can make a make a push there. Next question. Next sport to win an ACC championship or national title? Man. Maybe I'm a little bit too bullish, but I think 2024 could be a really fun year for Wake Forest sports in general. I think with the schedule and where the roster construction is for football, I think it'd be a really, really fun year. 2024 has been my year of like, hey, like, Green flag, green flag, green flag. Um, Wake basketball seems right, seems right there in terms of they can get you know a couple like an addition of a point guard out of the portal. Um, you know, maybe they get another guy out of high school for this cycle. Who knows? I still think baseball probably is the best chance for an ACC title for the soonest, just because I think that team right now. I mean, obviously they you know, we'll see how the rest of the season goes. It's just one weekend, but from what I've heard from scouts and what I've heard from around the team is that this team looks Omaha good. This is, this, this is a team that probably should win the ACC this year. So I think I'm going to go with them in terms of the ACC title. Natty, I'm probably going to go with soccer, men's soccer. Uh, they got to get over the hump one way or another, man. <laughs> like At a certain point, that team is going to get there, and I think they're still the best chance at a Natty right now. For, for an ACC title, underrated one, women's tennis. Uh, you know, they've had a struggle this year. They're they're really, really young this year. There is a ton of talent on that team. And I think with the with a full year of them gelling, I know they'll lose Anya Brimlin after this year, but I think a full year of the rest of that team gelling and will they should be a dangerous team next year. So I'm really excited to see how they how they pull things off. So a question, who do I think leaves the ACC at all? And I think it depends on the year. If you're talking to me about anything before, say, 2030, there's not a single team, I think, that leaves the ACC before 2030. 
I think we have really underestimated the power of legal fees. Billing billing hours are undefeated in every arena ever. But so many teams and so many schools have put together a, a team of lawyers that have been trying to rip the grant of rights to shred for the last few years, even before realignment was a thing. And yet here we are in 2023 and there's nothing. They People are not getting out of that grant of rights. No one wants to lose a decade's worth of their TV revenue. You lose a you lose a decade of your revenue, and you lose the rights to sell it to your sell your TV rights to any other conference. So you're so before you have to get into some sort of payout to the ACC, you're not even really going to be making money from your own teams like like playing on TV. People aren't going to be able to afford that. <laughs> So that's been a big thing. Like people aren't just aren't gonna be able to do that. So I don't think anyone will do that. Yeah, around 2030, you know, if there's a bigger wave of uh, realignment, the four schools I think would be FSU, UNC, Clemson, UVA. Seems like a weird grouping. Clemson is Clemson. I think Clemson would be a good team for say the Big Ten to get. Same with the same with FSU. Uh, I don't think FSU would ever end up in the SEC. I think they have the Florida market pretty fine, and I don't think they really care about adding FSU. UNC and UVAs are probably the one that people are like, what's going on here? And it's like very highly respected academic institutions. Those are things the Big Ten want. Secondly, for both the Big Ten and the SEC, two very fertile recruiting grounds and states that they don't have. Look at where the the best teams in the country are trying to poach players for. Alabama will come will come into Virginia or North Carolina if they want to. Georgia, Georgia will come to North Carolina whenever everyone's in Tennessee will come to there. Ohio State came and got the best receiver out of North Carolina. Uh, it, these are places that people want to recruit. They understand how good their football teams are, and they're in pretty big markets in terms of having fan bases and having TV. I think TVIs are a little bit less on the scale right now, especially with all the streaming services. Back in you know, the first wave of realignment with, like, with Syracuse, and Boston College came to the ACC. People cared about TV markets. I think people still do care about TV markets, but unless you're getting the LA market or you're getting USC, it doesn't really matter at this point. Or you're getting Oklahoma or Texas because those are the two biggest programs there. Right now, you're getting, you're worrying about fan base size. If you're doing anything in terms of realignment, you're worrying about who are the who's the biggest brand we can bring in. And a flagship university of a school of of a, of a state with Virginia and. UNC being the biggest institution in North Carolina, that those are two huge cells. Both are great basketball programs. There's a lot to there's a lot to like about them. So I think those would be the four I would be like would leave. Now bringing them into bring people into the ACC, the four have always been the same for me: Notre Dame, Oregon, Washington, uh, five, Washington, Stanford, Cal, um, California. Always been my grouping. Never going to change. Notre Dame, nothing happens left unless Notre Dame says yes. The question is always, does Notre Dame want to go all in? And I'm very curious about that. I'm really curious about that, especially after the whole debacle of them not wanting to pay to buy out an offensive coordinator from Utah. Also, Utah has been a great football program. Go Utes. This, like, if Notre Dame sits there and says, we want to take the next step in being a football football program, they're going to join a conference. 
And I don't see it being viable for them joining the Big Ten, considering their agreement with the ACC right now. They're not going to not going to be able to buy their way out of that. I think if they join a conference, it will. Why well, I know people like to rip on Jim Phillips. I think Jim Phillips is correct in saying if another team does join a conference, it'll be the ACC. And I don't think he's just talking out of his, you know, what because of that. I think it's. But if Notre if Notre Dame comes, I think you have a very viable opportunity to say, hey. You can grab Stanford, you can grab an Oregon and Washington, those two teams that have been trying to jump ship from the Pac-12 for the last 12 months almost. Um, but I think, you know, grabbing those four and then, you know, if Cal and Stanford seem like a package deal in terms of those sort of things, maybe Cal doesn't care about football anymore and says we just want to be a research institution, whatever, that could work. I think if, I think that might work better having 18 teams instead of 19 teams. But for the sake of this argument, I'll say they go to 19 and we go from there. You figure it out, but that'll that is the group thing I would stick with. Is Dave Clawson a top five head coach in college football? This question is absolutely meant to get me in trouble. Um, I mean, you look at the coaches around the country, I think you're pretty clear on the top three of Kirby, Saban, Dabble Swinney. I think I, I I fail to see a coherent argument for anyone else. I don't care what Josh Heupel did in one year. Mario Cristobal, no. Can't say Mac. I can't say. Hey, no, that would be my top. That would be my top three. Now, I'm not going to answer the question with top five, but I'm trying to think about you know some of the best que- like best coaches in college football. I think Cal Whittingham at Utah does not get the respect he deserves. I think he's very similar to Dave Clawson out in out on the West Coast, well, Mountain Time, of. Utah is not going to be a team that ever has like a top 15 recruiting class, but man, they developed the hell out of their players, man. And I think Winningham does a very good job of identifying talent and building up just like Dave Clawson does. I think Brian Kelly is a very underrated head coach. I don't think he's a person, um, but I think he has absolutely proven himself to be a good coach. Luke Fickle, very good coach. James Franklin. I still think that Dave Clawson doesn't get the credit he deserves. I, I, it was funny when I was actually looking at this question. I decided, you know, what, let's Google the top twenty-five head coaches in the, in the country right now and see what everyone, see what the popular media says about this stuff. And I, I kept seeing Dave in the top twenty, like two, like he was like 21, 22. and I, I kept looking at that, and I was just like, and I was like, well, who are you putting ahead of him? And I kept seeing names like I I have some up right now. Saw names like Mel Tucker and PJ Fleck, Matt Campbell, Paul Christ, who got fired. <laughs> uh, like Mark Stoops, I think Mark Stoops is a good coach. Kirk Ferentz, really? Cristobal, no. Like Jimbo Fisher, like I was just like, what? Like what? What are we doing here? Like what? What are we doing here? I think that. You know, Dave Clawson, every, everyone has their faults. Every, everyone has their flaws. But I think Dave Clawson has been, has put a lot of life into this Wake Forest football team and his, and his program as a whole. And so I, whenever I see him being like, oh, are you in the, you're barely in the top 25 of head coaches? I go, what are we basing putting a guy like Mario Cristobal over him for? Basically making us say that Justin Herbert wasn't good. And then we come to find out Justin Herbert's like a top three NFL quarterback right now. What are we basing on for Jimbo Fisher? Because he won a national title 10 years ago at this point, which kudos to him winning a national title very hard. That was 10 years ago. He has been a miserable head coach since. He has been a awful head coach since. I mean, 
Lincoln Riley. Sure. I guess maybe like there's like these coaches. It's like, what is, what is Matt Campbell? What is, what has Matt Campbell done? I, I am, I am genuinely intrigued to what Matt Campbell has done at Iowa state to deserve being this guy that we're all, that we're all like fawning over that. Like I, it's weird. It's weird, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get in trouble with that question, but I, I do think that Dave Austin somehow does not get the respect he deserves nationally in terms of being as good of a coach as he is. Next one. The most satisfying win, whether it's been football or basketball, I'm going to answer both because why not? Football, I would definitely say NC State 2021. It was between that and the Belk Bowl against Texas A&M because it was Texas A&M and it was just kind of funny watching a depleted group of fans from College Station just kind of come out and be like, oh, how we're going to beat Wake Forest, whatever, and then lose. Like, that was just hilarious just on every front. Uh, but NC State 2021, um, I mean, I was in the stands for Belk Bowl, but I was in the stands for for the NC State game at home last year. And the NC State fans that night were, let's call them annoying. And <laughs> they were not necessarily the most pleasant people. And I have nothing against NC State fans. Some of my really good friends um, have are NC State grads. Like I was in a wedding with a bunch of NC State people, some of the nice people that I've met. These particular human beings, not so much. Um, it was just like, I, I just didn't get it. And especially at hearing after what I heard this past year of certain parents and other fans thing at being in Raleigh and getting having to deal with some with some things they shouldn't have to deal with that in that in that place it makes it even more satisfying but yeah like when being done that year playing probably a seed level offensive game and it was just from a program perspective especially after what happened in the Clemson game it made it feel like hey this team could bounce back from anything and I think that's what made it important was every school every fan of every school thinks oh no Woe is us. This is where this happens again. I promise you, ask any fan of any school about, you know, the trial and tribulations of being an ex-fan. They'll be like, yeah, man, we always get our hopes up and then they get dashed. You know, we can't ever have good things. And I think it's a, a thing Wake Forest fans have as well. But I think that season was the first time in a while I was like, wow, like there isn't this collapse. There isn't this, like, we finished strong. And I think that's really important. I think winning that game helped prove like, hey, you know, we had a chance to go out there and win the ACC. And didn't, and then now we have a whole game, biggest game in however long for Wake Forest, and went out there and won. And not just like kind of fluky one, or like went out there and won. And I think that's really important. Basketball, it very easily, Louisville, the year they made the tournament. Steve Forbes has had some satisfying wins. Duke this year comes to mind. Storming the court against Rick Pitino will never not be funny. I remember he, the student section was raucous at that game and I remember locking eyes a few times at Rick Pitino and he was not pleased with a single one of those students <laughs> and just being able to, to like rush the court and everything and being like well like for me that per- person that was my first ever uh, court storming so that was a really really cool experience yeah be there I was friends with a lot of guys a lot of the guys on the team so it was really nice to kind of just hang out with them on the court while they're just being happy and being like we're gonna go like we're gonna go to the tournament after this that's so why that was really nice. And so, but again, being your Pacino, always going to be really fun. So there are a few questions about, you know, next year's football team. I'm just going to kind of jumble into one massive question and of expectations of next year. 
you know, in terms of what I think the Vegas expectations are, I'd probably set the line at seven and a half wins, but heavily juice the under, probably a minus 180 on the under. And just look at the schedule. You should be decent favorites against Vanderbilt, Elon, Old Dominion, Georgia Tech, Virginia Tech, Houston. Houston's that team fell apart this offseason. I feel so bad for Dino. Um, but yeah, that yeah, that team fell apart. Math-wise, you should, you should, those should be the teams that you have probably 70 to 75% chance of winning right now. Like, and that's about where my numbers have them right now. Odds-wise, you think they probably get one of Pitt, FSU, Duke, NC State. Just just from a simple, if I'm just putting this in a computer, the math probably spits out about one. I think right now the math for me spits out about 1.4 wins out of that group of four games. Not exactly like thrilling, but you you expect them to probably get one of those games. And I think it's close enough to where you say, all right, we're going to bump this to the half just so people aren't pushing, but we very much juice the under. Um, so, but um, so unless we get a bunch of money just on the under, we're just going to keep it here and just kind of bait people into saying they think Wake wins two out of those games or beats a Notre Dame or, or Clemson. Um, who knows what Notre Dame is going to be right now. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how an offensive coordinator comes out here and teaches a brand new offense in about a month. That's one of the biggest things people usually want defensive coordinators to be, or defensive offense coordinators to be in seat around probably before February. Like if you can, ha- if you can help it before February, because you want to be able to when they're when you're going through whatever your strength conditioning program is, that you're also getting your you're getting your quarterback in the film and be like, we're going to drill with you, or this is how we're going to start getting this done before spring camp. And so, I'm intrigued to see what it looks like. I'm intrigued to see the fact that they don't have as good as wide receivers as Wake Forest did. So I'm I'm really intrigued to see what Wake, what Notre Dame looks like from an offensive standpoint. I don't th- I think Wake will be probably nine ten nine to ten point dogs at this point, but we'll see. Um, yeah, so I probably set it at seven and a half and juice the under. If that line opened at six and a half, I am running to every sports book and just saying here take take the money from whatever future mortgage I have. Just just take it. I. If you're putting in six and a half, I, I'm taking away having seven minutes. Just you're telling me they have to win one out of six games. I'm taking that in a heartbeat. <laughs> so another part of the question was, you know, what do they think Wake Forest does schematically to really kind of help keep defenses on their toes? And I think one of the biggest reasons, one of the biggest things, I expect them to move the pocket and use Mitch's legs to their advantage. They didn't tell Sam to stop running last year. He just didn't do it. And, and I think when you look when you look at the overall numbers from in terms of actual runs, Sam ran about the same, if not a little bit more than he did last year. However, the biggest difference was when things got off script. According to PFF, Sam had 37 scrambles in 2022 compared to 56 in 2021. That is a massive difference over the span of 12 games. Like that, like having basically you scrambling 20 times less is definitely a big old what's going on here. Granted, you missed the first game of the season. You didn't play. You got an extra game last year. That's fine. But I think it kind of identifies something we saw pretty much all year of 
he didn't really scramble out of the pocket. I mean, I, I can think about the Duke game, the UNC game from 2021 versus 2022. In both of those games, he kind of took off. And this in this year, he didn't really scramble in either of them. And there's not really much difference in terms of the defenses of either of those. I so I'm I it was really kind of perplexing to see him not take off as much. And I think that's something they're gonna try to see if Mitch can do more. I, I Mitch is a little spark plug. I I am a big, big Mitch fan. And I'm really interested to see how much they move him out of the pocket. I think he's gonna be a guy that is isn't necessarily gonna lock onto one target. And I don't want to make that a bad on Sam. I think when you have A.T. Perry, and I think everyone knows how big of an A.T. Perry fan I am. Uh, love you, A.T. Can't wait for you to get drafted in the second or third round. But I think there were times last year where, I mean, not even just last year, but in twenty, like 2022, 2021, 2020, where Sam has, has a propensity of lock onto one target. That's fine and dandy. But I mean, there'd be games where AT would just absolutely blow everyone out of the water target wise. And it's like, that's, you're not keeping defenses off the feet, off, off on their toes. If you're saying, we know where the ball is going to go. Trust me, it, it was definitely excellent when we all knew where the ball was going to go and they couldn't stop it. But at a certain point, you know, you got to move things around. And a lot of that was, a lot of times they still knew where, where Sam wanted to go with the ball, but they still had to account for him not running. And I think they weren't able to, they had, didn't have to do that last year. And so I think there's going to be an emphasis on getting Mitch out of the pocket and seeing, you know, where things happen. So I think there's a couple of question marks at the tackle spots. You know, I think Devontae Gordon played well last year, but you do have a question of who's your left tackle. You know, you're still starting, uh, you, you might be starting Spencer Clapp, who, while he's a good guy, you know, played some good snaps from last year, isn't the most mobile guy at left tackle. Do you throw in a guy like a... I don't know. Uh, CJ Elmanus over there. Do you flip Demonte Gordon to left tackle and see if you can handle it this year. Like you, I think you can figure that out. But I think while you're mitigating, trying to mitigate what's going to go on there until you have that figured out, what what do you do when you do that? You have a mobile quarterback who's able to move the pocket and fix things when things break down. And I think that's going to be a major part of what's going to happen this year. And I think it's really kind of interesting that they hired a guy from the wire from Air Force who probably places a premium. I mean, every wide receiver coach just place, places a premium on blocking wide receivers. If you do not block, you will not be on the field. But I find it very interesting that now you have a mobile quarterback, you have a wide receivers coach who should be emphasizing the ability to block as a wide receiver. I'm very curious if some option concepts start coming into this, whether it just be some random, some random speed options. So, I mean, look, I, I it kind of sucked losing Quinn Cooley and losing Chris Turner, even though we kind of knew we kind of thought Chris Terry was going to graduate slash go to the draft and think he was going to transfer. But I mean, your RB2 next year might be a kid that runs like a 10, 500 meter dash. <laughs> I think there are going to be some really, you can, you can throw some really funky concepts out there, especially DeMond has some hands too. You can run some, some weird option type offenses as long as your wide receivers are blocking well. And I think it could be, I think it might be a really fun, Thing to say, hey, you know, let's move the pocket, get the running back with us outside. You know, if you have a Donovan Green coming over the middle for a little, little short post, can he hit him? Sure, but if he's getting covered, can Mitch take off? If Mitch can't take off, can he? Can he at least fake it and get it to Demond Claiborne in space? I think you can run some pseudo triple option or just some speed option stuff 
and it'd be really kind of fun. And I and I think there's some stuff built in the in the playbook already. That's one of the reasons, and it's kind of a little tangent here. It's one of the the reasons why I've always gotten a little annoyed. And I know Dave Gosson gets annoyed about the whole like the slow meshes, the Wiggs offense. There's so much built into this offense and so much other stuff that they run, such has the ability to run that the slow mesh isn't their offense. And the reason I know that they are able to, to move the pocket is we've seen some glimpses of them trying to do Sam with Sam. People just didn't respect Sam Hartman's ability to throw this last year. They did it in 2021 and people didn't, people didn't know what to do with it. They did it in 2022 and people went, Sam is running this year. You, you can, you don't have to stay home as much. So I'm really, I'm really intrigued to see that. But I, I think using Mitch's legs and being able to fl- like naturally flush him out instead of him just freaking out and flushing out is going to be a really interesting thing next year. Um, you know, biggest needs and what's going to go on in terms of defensive line. I think defensive line is probably the biggest question mark right now. I mean, you lost Rondell Bothroy, which was kind of hurt. You lose essentially most of your defensive tackles. Uh, you have Bernard Gooden be uh, off the team, essentially. And, you know, you're a little thin at defensive tackle right now. You have Kevin Pointer. You have Bryce Ganius, who I think I really enjoy what Bryce Ganius looks like in on film. Um, you're going to get him in the weight room a little bit. I think he's up to, I think he's up to like 280, 85-ish at this point. Uh, he, I really like what they have out of, out of Bryce. And, you know, but past that, it's a little it's a little awkward. You don't really know what you have on that interior side. And I just, it's not really spilling beans to say they're going to be looking at the portal and saying, how do we get some help from that, from that perspective? I'm intrigued to see what Isaiah Cheney looks like this spring. I mean, he's someone who just cannot stay healthy. If he can stay healthy, everything I had heard about him was like, he was one of the most athletic people on the defensive line. It just kind of sucked for a bit because he was behind Ronald Bothroyd, Andrew Sheen Davis, who I've heard is a draft darling right now, by the way. Um, people are, people like, yeah, I think, I think people are going to really hone in on Jasheen Davis for the upcoming, for the 2024 draft. But yeah, I'm, so I'm a little intrigued to see if, you know, does Isaiah Training moving to defensive, defensive tackle? He's 6'4, 280. I probably put him actually around 6'3, 280. Um, but good size to play there. I think there's a lot of opening for a guy like Chris Marable, 6'4", 290, and I think that's a legit 290 for him to really wreak some havoc there. The guy that I'm really interested in is Eli Hall. He missed a considerable amount of time with injuries uh, this, his, this past season. Really kind of sucked because I thought he was someone that could have maybe like rotated in a little bit, especially in a couple of the earlier blowouts. He's someone that... I'm thinking that he's standing 6'3", 274. You can put a little more weight on him. You probably shouldn't lose enough, a, a whole lot of his explosiveness and speed being that size. If you're able to do that, I don't see really any issue in saying, hey, let's see if you can swing a DTDE sort of thing. And we go from and we go from there. You know, like I, I'm really intrigued. Like if he can play, because I, I do think they need to figure out who's backing up Jasheen Davis this uh this year i don't think really have a good answer for that maybe maybe cheney maybe they add cheney to lose some weight i don't think so i think it'll be probably eli hall but if he can kind of swing a dedt sort of thing it makes you a little more flexible about what you have to go to the portal i think you still go to the portal for defensive line help 
but I do think it makes it a little bit of like, okay, now we can get some, if we can get someone with some double flexibility, we can run some fun packages. We don't need just a D, just a 330 pound DT or, you know, you need a speed rusher on, on the strong side. You can go, okay, you know what we can have to have two guys that can basically be interchangeable depending on which one to go three downs or four or four down. I think he can play a big, very big role in that. And I think him taking the next step and being healthy will be great for this team. This has been a fun episode. Always like doing this. Please make sure to five stars, comment, share with your friends. Really help us out. I'm always appreciative of the sport on this. And as always, go Deeks.